Father, we thank you, we praise you that you come and you meet with us when we gather together. And we pray that you would now meet us in your word, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, and that you would lead us into life more abundantly. And we ask this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So this morning we are launching a brand new series together entitled Self-Denial in an Age of Self. And what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is we're going to be drilling down in Jesus's call to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and to follow him. Now, you might say, well, why are we doing that? Well, one reason is, is that we just got through with a long campaign and we've been talking a lot about money and sacrifice and commitment. And, uh, you know, if you were here at our Ash Wednesday service, uh, we talked about guilt and death and mortality. And I thought, let's just lighten it up a little bit. You know, talk about self-denial and bearing the cross. But, you know, another reason is that self-denial is one of the basic requirements of discipleship. You know, I don't know if you heard in the text that was read to you, it says that Jesus called the crowds and then he called the disciples and then he said, if anyone. You know, there are times when Jesus draws his disciples in for some graduate level training on some of the mysteries of the kingdom. But not here, not in this text. In this text, Jesus calls everyone to himself, the crowds, the disciples, and he says, if anyone, he makes this call as universal as possible. And he says, look, if you wanna be my disciple, here is the base level requirement. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. And so some of you, you have rejected Christianity. You say, I'm not sure I'm interested in Christianity. Do you know what you've rejected? This is the basics. Some of you have accepted Christianity. You say, I want to follow Jesus. Do you know what you've accepted? This is the ground level, base level, Christianity 101. So one reason is that self-denial is one of the basic requirements of discipleship. But you know, there's another reason why I think it's important for us to really drill down, give some sustained reflection to this call here. And it's because self-denial is out of step with the basic impulse in American culture. Now the basic impulse, I think, in, in our culture, kind of the default mode in our surrounding, kind of the, the air we breathe, the water we swim in, it's a culture of narcissism and self-absorption and self-centeredness. Is that too harsh? You know, I know that throughout human history, people have been marked by self-absorption and narcissism. You know, in the fourth century, it was St. Augustine who used the phrase in Latin, incurvitus in se, to describe the basic human condition. And that word, incurvitus in se, it means a heart curved in on itself. Isn't that a telling way to describe humanity? And of course, in the 16th century, uh, John Calvin said that the basic problem of humanity is distorted self-love. And so incurvitus in say, distorted self-love, have been problems throughout human history. But I, I think you would agree with me that Americans have perfected the art of incurvitus in say. I heard this uh, limerick once, it went like this. There once was a nymph named Narcissus who thought himself very delicious. So he stared like a fool at himself in a pool, and his folly today is still with us. But you know, today, uh, we don't look at ourselves in a pool. Instead, we take selfies. 
You know, the selfie is sort of the epitome of American kind of like our narcissistic expressions. You know, to engage in the selfie, it's almost a ritual of American behavior. And think about it for a second. You, you take, you know, multiple pictures of yourself in the, you know, with a phone, you know, you know, doing little things. And then, and then you carefully curate those photos and then you post them on a social media site in order for people to like them and to affirm you. I was reading an article recently in the Huffington Post that linked selfies to narcissism and psychopathy. Now, it did clarify that if you edited a photo before posting, so if you edited a photo, a photo before posting, you are a narcissist, but you are not a psychopath. But uh, because a psychopath lacks impulse control, which explains why I never edit photos of myself. Now, of course, selfies are low-hanging fruit. It's easy to poke fun at. But I think you'd agree with me that our problems with self-absorption and narcissism run deep. You know, there was a book uh, published a while back uh, called The Self Beyond the Postmodern Crisis. And there's this essay in the book by a, uh, a, a psychologist from New York University who argues that it used to be that when it came to human self-understanding and self-identity, that most of us received our self-understanding from the tribe or from the family or something kind of from the group you were a part of. But they said, you know, in the modern age, that has all been deconstructed, and the previous kind of the tribe, the family, all those norms have been deconstructed. And so now they said it's left to the self to come up with its own identity and to present that. And what this article argued is that the way we do that is through self-presentation activities. And so uh, they said that, look, what we do is we go out and we purchase products, or maybe we, we go out and we have our house renovated or whatever, and we bring people in and then we display our things, our products, our clothes, our new countertop, our, our car. And, and this is the way we, we, we create an identity is through these self-presentation activities, which explains why so many of us are anxious when we walk into public situations, because so much rests upon it. We're always worried about what people are gonna think, and then, you know, do you ever find yourself, you're worried about, like, what am I gonna wear, and what are people gonna think about what I'm wearing, and then, uh, you, what, you know, wow, that sounded so awkward in that conversation, and then you have this loop that plays in your head when you go home, and you kind of agonize about it, and it haunts you in the night, and, and what is that? It is a self-centered, self-absorbed way of looking at life. And of course, what a lot of us don't realize is that almost everybody else is thinking the exact same thing. They're not thinking about you. They're not worried about the comment that you said. They're worried about the thing they said, you know? And, and just think with me about how easy it is in our culture to gratify our wants and desires. You know, in the history of the world, has it ever been easier? You know, it used to be that if you wanted something salty and fatty, you would have to go out boar hunting or something like that. You know, and that, that involved a certain amount of self-sacrifice and self-discipline and, and delayed gratification. But now if you want something salty and fatty, you just hop in the car, you drive up the street, and you don't even have to get out of your car. You have a nice person that comes up in a nice little hat at In-N-Out. And you can order your double-double animal-style french fries, and it comes just in seconds. And that's just eating. I mean, think about in our, the way 
Internet pornography has allowed people to escape the hard work and the beauty and the goodness of relationships and just gratify themselves sexually. And of course, you think about credit cards and how we can just indulge in, in, in so much racking up of debt because we live in this culture of immediate gratification. And it's in this context, in a culture that is so marked by self-absorption and narcissism, that Jesus looks us in the eyeballs and he says, if you want to be my disciple, here is the ground level requirement. Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. But that raises a question. What does it mean when Jesus says to deny ourselves? I mean, what exactly does it mean to deny yourself? And, you know, there have been different times in history where maybe feminists or, or maybe liberation theologians have questioned, they said, look, you know, what, what marginalized, oppressed people is, need is not more self-denial. They need more self-assertion. They need to be able to fight for their rights. And then how does the call to self-denial, how does it fit with our own values in our culture of self-care? and of self-expression. And, you know, there are ways in which people can be distorted. They can be so focused on others that they, they fail to care for them. How does this all fit together? What does it mean when Jesus says, deny yourself? Well, beginning today and in the next few weeks, we're gonna really be unpacking that. But today, I kind of wanna lay a groundwork and I want us to just kind of pull apart this passage in, in, in the text in front of us. And I wanna make two simple observations from this text about what it means to deny yourself. And the first observation is that self-denial is connected to the cross. Because notice what Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now in connecting self-denial with the cross, Jesus is saying, look, if you wanna be my disciple, you need to embrace the possibility of a martyr's death. You see, when Jesus talked about bearing a cross, you know, sometimes we, we speak about this in symbolic ways, you know, uh, I've got, you know, a difficult mother-in-law or a rough marriage or a hard job or my back hurts and that's just my cross to bear. But Jesus is not speaking metaphorically here. He's not talking symbolically here. Here, Jesus is being literal. He's in Caesarea Philippi. He, in this text, is about to set his face to go to Jerusalem where he will be tried unjustly and stripped naked and beaten to a bloody pulp and then hung to die on a cross. And Jesus says, if you are gonna be my disciple, you need to be ready to walk in the same way. You need to be ready to die the death of a martyr. The second observation is that this word deny uh, is the same word actually in Greek that's used to describe what Peter did when he was asked by a little girl in front of a fire whether or not he knew Jesus and he vehemently disassociated himself with Jesus. He says, I never knew the man. And so the word denial could be translated disassociate yourself. And so Jesus is saying, look, disassociate yourself with yourselves need for comfort, for security, for a future, for possessions. Disassociate yourself with the self's need for all of that and come and follow me. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a great Russian novelist and writer and thinker and social critic. 
But at some point in his life, uh, he was thrown into a prison in the Soviet Union. And he describes in, in, in a piece of his writing the mindset that enabled him to overcome his interrogators in the gulag. And there he is. He just looks like a Russian novelist, right? I mean, if you're a Russian, you just got to look like that. You say, no, no. A younger Bob Verberg? Okay, yeah, all right, I can go with that. <laughs> Perhaps, right? Patty's going to disagree with that. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he says here. Because I think his, his language that he used to describe his mindset can be applied to, I think, what Jesus is calling us to here. He says, from the moment you go to prison, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. You must say to your, yourself, my life is over. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die now or a little later. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died and for them I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Confronted by such a prisoner, he writes, the interrogator will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. And, you know, I think in the first century, in the first few centuries of the church, where the Christians often faced persecution and sometimes martyrdom, being cast to the lions, they, they would need to renounce their need for comfort and security and all of that in their call to follow Jesus. But that raises a question. What happens when, when the Christian faith moves into a new context where you're no longer persecuted for your faith, but it's actually a kind of a comfortable environment to follow Jesus? What does it mean to, to deny yourself and follow Jesus in this kind of context? And, you know, that was a live concern in the first few centuries of the church. You know, in the fourth century, uh, the church went from being, you know, living, existing in an anti-Christian uh, environment with pockets of persecution to actually having the Roman emperor convert to Christianity. And where it used to be, you know, socially problematic and financially problematic uh, to be a follower of Jesus, after the conversion of the emperor Constantine, it became socially and financially and economically, and in so many other ways, beneficial to be a follower of Jesus. And so now the, the, the Christians had to ask, what does it look like to follow Jesus in a life of self-denial in this context. And there was a small pocket of Christians who in that context in the Roman Empire, they were very troubled by how the church had gotten in bed with the government and how the church had seemed to become compromised. And, and, and there was a pocket of Christians that actually left the, the urban centers and they fled out into the desert in order to embrace lives of self-denial. And these were the early desert ascetics. Uh, these were uh, these guys who went out and, and they really became the forerunner of the monastic movement, which would later develop. And the most popular of all of the desert ascetics was a man named Simeon Stylites. Anybody here ever heard of Simeon Stylites? So a uh, classic guy. So um, at one point in his life, he went out into the desert and he started to construct this 50 meter pillar that he lived on the top of for three decades. And we can just imagine this sunburned ascetic 
crowds below, you know, raising up messages and food, and then he's lowering down messages and waste. I don't, I don't know. But, but why is he doing this? He's trying to take seriously the call to self-denial, to deprivation, to asceticism. So he embraces this harsh life. And Simeon Stylite and, and many of the other desert ascetics matured into the monastic movement where in the midst of self-indulgent and a compromised institutional church, there would, be, there would always be a group of Christians that kept alive the call of Jesus to self-denial by eating sparse meals and wearing uncomfortable clothes and engaging in menial work and living simply and waking up every few hours in the middle of the night to pray and, and, and sharing all of their possessions communally. Now, I wonder just for a moment now, like, what do you think about this whole kind of monastic movement that I'm describing? You know, I mean, think about these guys, you know, shaving off their heads or their hairs. I guess they didn't shave off their whole head. Now, I think looking at it from this vantage point, it's easy to look at some of these people and think they were psychologically unhealthy. You know, they didn't need to run out into the desert and build a pillar. They, they probably could have used just a good therapist, you know? And come on, what are these guys thinking, you know? And I think looking at it from this vantage point, we can see some excesses, but I just want to invite you to imagine entering into a thought experiment with me for a second. So they were making their best attempts kind of at this life of self-denial. And now in this thought experiment, uh, you have now died and you've entered into glory and you're walking down the streets of gold in the new creation and you run into, on your walk, Simeon Stylites. And you say, Simeon Stylites, hey, you're the guy who built that pillar, aren't you? So, you know, guys, Simeon, don't you think that was a little bit excessive, a little bit extreme? And he, he kind of laughs and says, yeah, yeah, it, it was extreme. And then he looks at you and he says, so what did you do to deny yourself? And many of us would just have crickets in the background. But it raises a question, what does it mean to deny ourselves in this time and in this place. And what I want to do at this point is I want to just kind of lay out some general principles, some general thoughts about what it means to deny ourselves. And then in the weeks ahead, we're going to give real particular specific examples of what this looks like in our day-to-day lives. But let's, let's begin by saying what it doesn't mean, and then we'll talk about what it does mean. Number one, to deny yourself doesn't mean to neglect yourself. Self-denial is not the same thing as self-neglect. Now, in our day and age, there is a lot of talk, and for good reason, about the importance of self-care. And of course, many of you will know that, look, if, if, if you are not caring for yourself well, you oftentimes don't have the resources that you need to care well for others. And actually, for, for many Christians, it actually becomes an act of self-denial. It, it runs against the great of their overly confident, I can just keep going on serving and serving and doing and doing it. I don't ever need to rest kind of thing. Like it it runs against the, it actually is an act of self-denial to stop and to do some self-care. And can I just be very direct? There are some of you that, look, if you are gonna be around for your grandkids a little bit later, you need to start eating better and you need to exercise and you need to care for yourself. 
And, and there are some of us here that, look, if you really want to be more patient with your children or with your roommate or with, you know, like your, your spouse, you just need to get better sleep. And some of you, you know, maybe if you want to learn how to like process and talk together more, better with your spouse, like you need to go to therapy. Like there's some self-care that needs to happen if you're going to engage in a life of caring well for others. And so self-denial is not the same thing as self-neglect. In fact, sometimes actually caring for yourself and, and, and attending to the inner life can actually be an act of self-denial because it, it, you don't really want to go through that hard work. And so number one, denying yourself doesn't mean neglect yourself. Number two, deny yourself doesn't mean hate yourself. You know, there is something to be said for the importance of self-esteem and self-love. And if you just stop and think about it for five minutes, you are the objects of the love of God. God has moved heaven and on earth, he's moved heaven and earth in order to enter into creation so that he might rescue his image bearers. You have dignity and worth. You matter to God. And so because you matter to God, because you have dignity and worth, because you are loved, you can be secure in yourself and you can esteem yourself, you know? And, and very often when, when, you are, when you hate yourself and you're all down on yourself, you oftentimes don't have the resources to move out and to love others well. And sometimes your own vomiting out of anger and disappointment on others is really just a reflection of how you feel about yourself. And so self, you know, deny yourself doesn't mean hate yourself. You say, well, what does it mean? Well, let's talk about kind of the, what, it, what it does mean. And I wanna, I wanna argue that self-denial, according to what Jesus says in this text, involves at least two things. One is negative and the other is positive. First, self-denial involves the mortification of the flesh. You know, almost everyone agrees that although in the original context, when Jesus says, deny yourself and take up the cross, he is speaking literally. But there's also a metaphoric layer to Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' best interpreter is arguably the Apostle Paul, and he actually picks up on the crucifixion language in order to describe the, Christian, the, the beginning of the Christian life and actually the character of the Christian life. And he speaks about the beginning of the Christian life as being a death. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. To new converts who are getting baptized, he says, you died with Christ. And then when he speaks about the continuing Christian life, he talks about crucifying the flesh. And he talks about by the spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body so that you might live. In other words, self-denial involves the mortification of the flesh. Now, I know mortification is not a common word we use. Many of you probably didn't even use it this last week, did you? And in fact, I Googled the word uh, mortification this week, and this is the first image that picked that. I saw, it was the image of somebody beating themselves up. And sometimes Christians have felt that the way that you overcome kind of like your, you know, yourself, your sin and all this stuff is by beating yourselves up. It was St. Francis who said that every time he had a lustful thought, he would cast himself into a big bush of thorns. I understand it was quite effective. And, um, but mortification is not really, really talking about that. Mortification is really about you and I, number one, dying to our false self. 
You see, the, the Bible has this interesting language. It talks about our old self and our new self. Our old self is our self in Adam, our self running and hiding from God, our self covering our shame and trying to, to present differently. And, and Jesus is calling us to live openly. He's saying, look, die to that false self. Die to your need to always be presenting yourself better than you know yourself to be. And isn't that what we're always trying to do? You know, I, I just think, I went out in the, um, on the grass to get a donut after the service and um, before this service. And, you know, we have uh, somebody who's serving the donuts now, like they serve you in your hand to protect us from germs. Uh, but I did, I, I found myself thinking, like normally I go out there and I get five or six donut holes. But now like, I'm like, oh, I'll just have two. And what is that? I mean, that's just like, there's this social thing that happens where we're always trying to present better than we know ourselves to be, than we truly are. And the Christian life means dying to the need to hide and pretend. Stop pretending to be something that you're not. And may God help us to be a church that isn't a church full of people who hide and present ourselves to be churchy and religious when it is, as a matter of fact, we're really just broken, insecure, fearful people who've got a lot of problems in our life. Can we just be honest about that? And so putting to death the false self, but also Paul speaks in terms of putting to death the desires of the false self the desires that arise out of our fallen humanity. You know, where our culture really cherishes and values self-expression. You know, in the modern age, uh, we move from talking about ethics to talking about values. And that's because ethics refer to something objective outside of ourselves, but values are kind of interior and are grounded in the self. But you know, and, and so, you know, the highest good is to allow people to express themselves and simply to live according to their own desires without being judged. But listen, what scripture says is that not all of your desires are good. You have fallen desires that need to be mortified, that need to be put to death, that need to be taken out of operation. And so some of us, what we have a desire to do when we've been hurt you want to hurt somebody else. You want to speak a word over their life that is going to make them feel pain or you'll be passive aggressive and just let them feel your ice. And that's destructive to you. It's destructive to the relationship. Some of you, you want to indulge in desires to, to in, engage yourself sexually with something that is false. It's an image on a screen and it's absolutely destructive to your relationships and to your soul and to yourself. Some of us, we, we want to just indulge all of our desires for all of our, all the products that we want, the new thing that we want, and it's empty and, and it's just corroding us. And so Paul speaks to us about putting that to death, to putting off the old self, to denying the desires of the old self. This is what it means to deny yourself. But not just negatively, Paul also, or Jesus is talking here more than just negatively, Jesus is speaking positively here. And listen, this is critical because you ask yourself, like, what does it really mean, you know, to, to live a life of self-denial in this age and in this culture? Did it just get dark in here all of a sudden? 
Was that our lights changed or was that just like a cloud moved over us? I looked out at my notes for a minute and then I looked up at you people. I could hardly see you out there in the dark. So this last week, uh, I was at a conference at a Marriott uh, for uh, pastoral residencies. And one morning I got up and I was working on my sermon. And so I was pouring all over this text on self-denial. I'm in this, it was actually quite a nice Marriott hotel that they were holding this thing in. And um, I got up in the morning, I went and I took a shower after I was studying this text and my shower was tepid, <laughs> hardly lukewarm. And I was infuriated. And I thought, come on, like, like you expect two things from every hotel, right? Two basic fundamentals. You need a comfortable bed and you need what? Give me a hot shower or you failed me. <laughs> and I, there, I was at this conference trying to serve Jesus. And here I have to endure this tepid shower, you know? It was so hard. We all gotta deny ourselves. What does it mean though? To deny yourself, well, yeah, it means to put to death the false self. It needs to mortify those, those desires that actually make for your destruction. But why? Notice the opposite of denying self or the, the kind of alternative to living for self after you've denied self is to follow Jesus. In other words, Jesus is not calling us to deny ourselves for its own sake. And part of the problem with the ascetic movement and the monastic movement is when asceticism became an end in and of itself. God's ultimate desire and plan for humanity is not deprivation. This is a God of abundance and healing and of creation. And he desires us to enjoy all things ritually. And yet there is a space and there is a time to deny ourselves and our wants and our desires and our comfort and our security in, in order that we might follow faithfully the master, Jesus, who is always live, leading us into lives of love and self-giving for our neighbor and for God. And so self-denial is always in the service of something far bigger and far more beautiful than self-denial, which is love for God and neighbor. And that's why in the Old Testament, one of the great calls to self-denial of fasting in the book of Isaiah, God says this, is this not the fast that I have chosen? It is a fast that actually looses the bonds of injustice and that actually provides food for the needy. In other words, you put to death your desires and your needs and your comfort in order that you might better love and care for others. And this is what Jesus is calling us into. Now notice the paradox Jesus gives us. He says, look, he says, why should you do this? And we'll delve into this our final week. We're gonna really talk about the irony, the paradox of a life of self-denial. But Jesus says simply this, because whoever would seek to save their life will lose it. But ironically and paradoxically, the one who loses their life will find it. When you give your life away for the sake of others, you actually begin to experience more of life. And when you live only for yourself and your own wants and your own desires, like your life diminishes. And so Jesus says, look, follow me into this way of life. And you know, the beauty of the call of Jesus and of the ethic of Jesus in this text 
It's that Jesus is not simply the one who issues the ethical command to deny yourself and to walk in this way of love. Jesus is the very embodiment of this command. Jesus is the one who embodies the call. He, 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 he lowers himself and he becomes nothing and less than nothing. He gives himself away. He denies his own comfort, his own glory with his father. He denies it all in order that he might enter into our world so that he might give his life away for us. And he says, look, in me is life. And if you want to know the divine life, it is found here. You want to enter into the life of God, it is here. It is when you receive this great love of God, the sacrificial, self-giving love of God in Christ for us, the, the love that opens up his, his, his arms wide in vulnerability, in full honesty, a, the true and real self given away for the life of the world and welcoming us into his arms. When we receive this love, we enter into the divine life and then we, we begin to embody this way of life or Jesus calls us into this way of life. And you know, this morning we begin and in the next few weeks, we're gonna come back together. And I would just encourage you, beginning today and in the weeks ahead, don't allow the sermon that we give to end in the, in the pew, but take this conversation out into your community groups, into coffee or getting a drink with some friends or into a discussion with your spouse or your kids or your roommate and asking the questions like, like where have we accommodated to a very self-centered, self-absorbed narcissistic culture and how is it sucking our life away and diminishing us and making us less than human? And what would it look like in small ways and large ways to walk in the self-giving way of love? And in the weeks ahead, we are gonna talk very specifically about how this works itself out in different areas of our life. But let's pray together now and let's just ask that the Spirit of God would be at work in us, transforming us, releasing us, overcoming all of our objections with hope and with love and with faith. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, through your son Jesus, you have called us into a way of life that is counterintuitive, it's counterinstinctual, it runs against the grain of our default mode. And I just pray, oh God, that you would expose the default mode of self-centeredness and self-absorption and that you would open us up so that we might become better instruments of your love in this world. And would you empower us to do this work by your spirit? And would you assure us that we have been the objects and we are the objects of your love? And would our hearts, would our lives, would our minds be overcome by your great love? And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.